How's it going, everybody? The following is an episode of the STD podcast, where Shimmy, Trevor, and I debunk some common claims that we see perpetuated throughout uh, the fitness industry, specifically on social media, with self-proclaimed biomechanists. I actually got a ton of value out of asking these two their opinions on these subjects. I hate to be the guy who's out there kind of complaining and like, these are my pet peeves, but it is something that uh, I tend to get a little bit frustrated with when I see on social media. And I hope that this podcast can shed some light because I think it creates this false sense of what evidence-based practice truly is. And we also discuss that in the episode. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, please consider subscribing to the channel for future episodes. Like, comment, and share it if you think someone would find value with this podcast. Thank you all for watching. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the STD podcast. As you will notice, I am joining the crew with the uh, ghetto style camera uh, yeah. because my camera's uh, <laughs> my camera's giving me issues right now. Maybe I'll pop on to uh, high quality later on. But uh, we had a few topics we wanted to talk about today. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I kind of see this a lot in um, social media based fitness content. Um, a lot of people who heavily focus on biomechanics, and um, I think that sometimes these things are what would you say trevor that like 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 how do you how do you see these things represented i, I kind of want to get your into your input on that um they're represented as very much a like black or white like absolute statement mm -hmm. of this is the bet the only way to properly train xyz muscle and if you are doing anything else you are simply wasting your time yeah and and so uh, there's a few claims that I will address specifically. Um, but first I, I, I wanted to, to just address that, that you just, what you just said is the absolutism. Like, it, is there ever a case where there is simply uh, only one way to do anything? No. So if you ever have, if someone ever tells you that, especially within like fitness and like for growing for hypertrophy training, that, there is a one way and one way only to grow muscle. You can pretty much be assured that person is full of shit and doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm, 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 I will kind of get fired up in this podcast. So I'm not going to mince words. Like you, you see it a lot. And they, I mean, they'll literally like half the time these, these accounts, their half their videos are them responding to other people and being like, oh, this is a stupid exercise. You shouldn't be wasting your time doing this. This is yeah. how you do it. I hear them say that it's wrong a lot of the time. It's wrong to yeah. do it this way. And, it, you know, it's like, you know, may, maybe just being super simple. Not everyone is built the exact same way, perhaps. Not everyone has the exact same muscular structure where they have the exact same pination angles. Right. Limb lengths. Yeah. You know, these people talk like, oh no, this is the only way to do it. If you are doing anything other than this exact right here, you are messing up. But they, they, they don't know what that person is feeling. You know, that's, that's why if, if you watch like our technique review episodes, we give general advice. We give general advice and cues that will improve SFR for most people, but we're not going to super particulars like you have to be XYZ angle for your humorous. Otherwise, it's not working because everyone is built a little different and there is such a thing as individualism. Right. You know, not everyone is going to squat with the exact same stance. Like it, you, you, everyone's seen shimmy squat. The dude has like his heels are touching each other. I can't do that. Close, close, close. <laughs> There's Not like me a, either. Yeah. Shimmy, do you have anything to say on absolutism and, and exercise technique and? You know, creation? I do, and I I don't know if I'm going to articulate it very well, but I know that the sentiment will be understood. I don't like absolutism. I agree. I immediately get turned off of a content creator 
or would be fitness provider influencer when they immediately start with two things. Number one, coming off like their way is the best way. And number two is with call out culture and not only saying their way is the best way, but every other way is bad. I really get turned off by this. Mm. Now, here's the rub. The rub is I feel like myself, Trevor, you, and a lot of others that are friends of ours, we are starting, and I'm not saying this is bad because I'm perpetuating this. We are starting to feel, or I'm starting to feel like I'm saying everyone needs to be doing full range of motion, very controlled eccentrics, pauses. And I believe that. And I really do think that everyone should. But the problem with me thinking that is I end up becoming like everybody else where I'm saying, oh, now I think that my way is superior to yours. Sure, I'm dealing in more generalities than specific minutia. But I, I, I'll be honest, I, I do. I do think that that way is the best. Right. And well, what- um, it's a struggle because that's essentially me not taking my own medicine and yeah. you guys the same. You're right. Because <laughs> if we're all saying we don't want to say that there's one way that's the best. We want to deal in principles. Right. We want to deal in general ideas. Sure. But we're all pretty much saying that you need to train in a full range of motion in almost all cases. We all are pretty much saying slower eccentrics are a good idea. We all are pretty much saying pausing on nearly every movement. You don't have to, but it's probably a good idea. So, you know, then I come back around and I say, are are we just being the same as everyone else and we're being hypocrites or because we're speaking with softer language and not sort of putting it in your face that makes us different? I don't know the answer. I, I'd I, like I to think that's a fair criticism. Yeah, 100%. I, I'd like to believe that um, we tend to, like, like I never give, like, I was just, I, I think I mentioned this uh, maybe before the podcast or just right now when we were, when we were doing the intro, but um I would never say if someone is feeling an exercise and it's working really well for them that they should stop doing what they're doing. I provide suggestions and I say, Hey, see if this works better for you. And there are a lot of the framework I work within is, you know, control these centric pauses, full range of motion. Right. But that being said, if I have someone come to me who is reliably saying, Hey, this really messes up my say quads and it's um, you know, a little bit faster eccentric than I normally be comfortable with or something like that. And, um, you know, I usually ask them to try it the way I like, but I always say, Hey, if it doesn't feel any better then default to the way you like to do it. So I like to also provide that framework. It's not, it's not, Hey, do this. And this is, this is the best way to do it. It's not and my way. Also, and, and the other thing I'd like to say is that I think we generally operate through the scientific consensus or we try to take information from people who generally are um, using the scientific consensus and are rational skeptics. So people who are willing to change their 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 um, mind in the face of new information. And, and I am myself willing to do so. Um, I'd like to believe so at least. So I think that would be some of the some of the caveats to that. Um, and and I'm not saying that a lot. All these people do that either. I think that some of them may be a little bit more open minded, but. What you've noticed too, like the call out culture, that's kind of a part of it. It's like my way is right, your way is wrong kind of deal where it's like, well, maybe. Yeah. Any, any like rebuttal? The, like here, here's a, a, I think Shimmy during our technique review episode was maybe the one that was the best at oh, 100%. shining the light on saying like, hey, if this works for you, don't bother changing it. And I think that's kind of one thing that still keeps us out of that, like, my way is the best way and you're wrong camp, is that we all do agree, like, hey, if that works for you, rock on. Shimmy and I have talked about this in private. Like, Shimmy always tells me to slow down my eccentrics on back training more, and I always tell him to speed his up more. But it's just because it's what, like, for, for Shimmy, he says that those super slow eccentrics on his back 
feel best. It works great for him. For me, if I do that slow eccentric, it does not feel great for me. I feel very little in my back and my biceps just fatigue. So while we may joke with each other and be like, ah, your eccentrics are too slow and I only, oh, yours are too fast. We're not saying each other is wrong. So I think that's one area where we're not all the way in that camp of that call out culture and that absolutism culture is saying that like, hey, if that works for you, go ahead. Now, if maybe it's not great or if something is hurting, give this a shot. But if it, if it feels good on your joints and you get a good pump from it, you get soreness from it man, you don't necessarily have to change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with, um, I think that's also what separates someone who's actually evidence-based from someone who maybe claims to be evidence-based. I think that people are starting to think that maybe don't consciously use science to instruct their training um, to some degree, are starting to think that some of these people are, representative of evidence-based training but i think evidence-based training like we were talking about before we got on is it also includes experience also includes anecdote it also uh includes you know what works best for you and and what you found to work best over your years of, of training so um evidence-based practices and evidence-based coaching do not mean everything needs a pubmed study yeah we use things we have available as a framework and we also take into account anecdote and experience right because some things we don't have studies for just flat out and and the, there are some things like um so this is actually kind of a little, little bit of an interesting one uh shimmy i think you're the one that shared with me the the low carb study yeah so it was like it, it was one minnow posted about. Um, yep. Like low carbs show no benefit or high carbs show no benefit compared to a low carb study in in this particular muscle research growth. Study. Yeah. Yeah. In my experience, anecdotally, that's not true. Now, maybe that's got less to do with the actual like what the the nutrients and substrates are doing and more just the fact that like i can have a higher training intensity but that still counts yeah and i don't think that there as far as i know there's no research study that has looked at that in a long-term aspect with like a periodized training program right and uh to go even further to where we even have less data meno has mentioned before that it seems like enhanced bodybuilders seem to do even better on higher carbohydrate diets and sure. you know the the mechanism there we really don't know and and not to yeah. mention they're utilizing multiple compounds so it's just like how on it, earth could we even determine such a yeah right right you know but i you know i do think that like most enhanced bodybuilders would probably yeah. tell you yeah i do better on high carbs yeah anecdotally i've seen that with a lot of my enhanced clients as well yeah, it, this and, is one I've always made a joke about. Like, maybe it's the bro in me, but I do think that your body composition will be slightly better using higher carbohydrate dieting. I don't know. Anecdotally, that's how it's been for me. Maybe it's that when I'm dieting, I'm staying a little bit more full and I look a little bit better. I'm not quite so flat and but, uh, just more pumped and fuller when I'm massing. Who knows? Yeah. Dylan, back to the main topic of what you're saying or why we yes. got on here about um, maybe overemphasizing certain minutia and biomechanics. For, for as old as time, from a business standpoint, this has been perpetrated forever. The uh, one small thing that's messing with your gains, the one detail that you're missing, this has been a selling point forever, not only in fitness and anything. It's this one right. small detail that you may not have considered that nobody else is talking about that you need to change. And this is going to change everything. 
Um, and it's never going away. Yeah. And overemphasizing the basics, the big things, the hard things, the being consistent, the blah, blah, blah. Like that doesn't sell. That's not, that's not the thing. And it gets boring. Right. 100%. You know, when it comes to fitness, when it comes to business, people say, oh, there's this special CRM and there's a special marketing strategy and this new platform that you need to market on. And it's going to 10x your return on ad spend. And it's like, does it really? I don't know. Maybe you probably could have just used your typical marketing strategies and recognize that this system takes months and months to optimize. And you're not just going to have a 10x in a month or two months. And it takes time and it sucks. And you're going to lose money at first, or you're not going to make nearly the money that you want. And then over time, if you have a really good product and really good marketing and you're consistent and stuff, then eventually your return on ad spend will increase. You know, and I think with with fitness and with whatever exercise, it's the same thing. Like if you've been lifting weights for seven years and you squat 275 pounds, man, there is no little muscle group issue that's going to take you from 275 to 365. You probably just can't do it. Like you have to come to terms with that when it, when it comes to, you know, whatever it is, you've been lifting weights for five years and you're like, man, my biceps are 16 inches. Like, dude, chances are your biceps are going to be 17 and a half inches at the end of your training career. And that's it. You ain't getting twenties. You ain't getting 19s unless you go on steroids. You know, like this is, this is just the end all be all. And I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, like, you don't want to do that if you've gone through several massing phases, several in your lifting career, and you did them decently well, and then you did dieting phases, and you and you you know you shit out the other end, and now you're 175. Man, no MCT oil or cream of rice is going to make you be 195 shredded. It's not happening. It's just not. <laughs> and I think. Um... Also, like the algorithms, algorithms on social media incentivize people to say these things because they yes. know when they say certain uh, things, they get more views. Yes. Yeah, yeah I noticed yeah. even in my own content, like I talk about a basic thing, uh, a, a principle that, you know, I always try to just repeat those things because I know they're the more important things like sleep or whatever. Those always do worse than if I give an absolutism statement. Like, for example, the other day I did a video on blood donation and I said, stop donating your blood. But then provided a bunch of context on which when and when when you wouldn't do it, right? And even then, yeah. I still had people saying, "Well, it's and not that good." That video in this did good, right? You got like eighteen thousand plays or something. Exactly, exactly. And it was because yeah. I led with yeah. something that was an absolute stop doing this, yeah. don't do this, right? What it's like that's not really what I mean, and a lot of people misinterpreted it that way, which is not what I wanted, right? But it does mm -hmm. it does better than my other content, so it's like uh, it's kind of people a, literally watch you say stop donating blood and then stop watching the video. Exactly. And they're like, wait, you should donate. Wait, what about this? And I'm like, that, I said that in the video. And then I further contextualized it in the, in the caption. It's amazing. It's amazing how different a lot of content creators and would-be biomechanists would come off and how much more integrity they would exude if they just simply added the phrase, this is my best guess. I don't know if this is right, but this is my best guess given the information that I've seen thus far. You yeah. simply add that phrase. It's almost like a disclaimer that that, yeah. that absolves you of being an ignorant moron or, or just like being unethical. <laughs> it's just the one. Yeah. It's literally that one magic phrase. It is that one magic phrase. If you just continuously right. you say whatever you want to say, but then you say, I don't know if this is true. This is my best guess based on what I've seen and the years that I've learned or the years that I've studied. And I may change my mind in a year. I may change my mind tomorrow. But today, this is what I, Shimmy, Ryan, Jack, you know, Denise, whoever you are, this is what I think. And it really would change. It, it really would. You, you would come off so much more honest and, right. and better. I will say that some of them do show this sense of like like one another thing that makes me skeptical is a lot of the time when you criticize or you try to bring up a counterpoint some of these people do get defensive some of them not all of them and that is another thing that makes me skeptical is the defensiveness against their position sure not saying that that's that person and i think that that context would be important too yeah 
Yeah, well, oh, like, when when they're they get defensive in non-useful ways. They start taking your criticism as a personal attack. Yeah, right. That's a very good sign that they don't know what they're talking about. That they're yeah they're attached to their belief system. Um, and their belief system represents themselves and their intellect and whatever, or that's their thought process potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to address some of the specific claims, if you guys don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I got, I got, I got a few more minutes. Okay. One of the claims <laughs> that I see is lining up the line of force, um, or the joint with the muscle fiber uh, for example on an incline dumbbell press you'll see a lot of these people instead of flaring your elbows because this doesn't on an incline press if, if you flare your elbows this doesn't line up with your the line of force doesn't line up with your clavicular pec fibers and so you should drop your elbows in order to um, be able to better target the the clavicular uh, you know head of the pectoral muscle uh, and there's many other claims like this um, but but what potentially are some flaws with that argument to me i think that they 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 miss out on the big rock entirely if you're already taking a somewhat inclined angle and moving through somewhat of a full range of motion the clavicular head and the sternal head are going to be turned on regardless of elbow angle and uh regardless of arm position in my opinion so once you're in that angle so long as you're training through a decent range of motion with control, at that point, you just have to choose what elbow angle or grip that you want the weights to move that feels best for you where you don't feel pain. And once again, I think that that's just minutia, minutia to get views and minutia yeah. to sound smart. I don't honestly think that it really matters. It's the same probably with saying the same thing as uh, when you're squatting. You know, it's like as long as you're squatting through a full range of motion and with control and you're able to generate tension in your quads, whether your feet are turned forward, your feet are turned out, whether you're completely upright, you have a little bit of a lean forward. Like, I I don't really think that that matters, but it sounds cool to say that it does. Well, you can... You can completely negate the, the the particular one of the pec fiber by saying, oh, well, you have to align it at a certain angle. Um, because one, everyone has a different pination angle and everyone has different shaped pecs. You'll see some people get really, really lean and their clavicular head is half their damn pec that comes down here. And maybe for that person, being at this angle would feel the best. But then other people's are much shorter and stay right here. And so for them, maybe it would make sense that a more flared elbow is more comfortable. But saying everyone is the exact same is completely false. Right. And that's where it comes down to, instead of saying, oh, you need to have your elbows at X, Y, Z angle. Maybe you just say, see what feels comfortable in your joints and what you feel the muscle the best. And that's probably going to be the angle that works best for you. Yeah. That's that's almost as reliable as a study on um, a general population, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably more reliable to say, do what feels best. Because again, how many people know uh, where their pec fibers align, right? How many people have gotten lean enough to be able to tell? Yeah, unless you've gotten dick skin lean. Right, 100%. Yep. Um, let's see, I have another, I have all these written down. So uh, another one I saw was to limit the range of motion. This was specifically on a um, lat prayer or or um, some t- sort of pullover type movement to stop because the muscles are no longer in their active range of motion. Uh, this is specifically regarding the stretch. Yeah, so and- this whole topic of active versus passive range of motion, we can probably just do that, right? Just uh, far and above the pullover. I I think once again that that is just language created to sound intelligent that doesn't matter. I get messages about that too where sometimes I'll do a movement and they'll say, yeah, but when you're doing the incline dumbbell curl and you're curling all the way up, the biceps are not completely active there. Or if you're doing a lying leg curl, why go through the fullest range of motion? Why not just stop two-thirds of the way down and come back up? 
And I yeah. say to and, and and to that I say, when you're training a muscle group, why should everything be active at all times? Why can't there be fluidity in the movement? To me, I feel like that is naturally how our body would move anyway. And I'm not trying to be a naturalistic fallacy yogi type person, but <laughs> I, I'm going to take my muscle through its fullest range of motion. And sometimes that involves being, I guess, somewhat passive. The, the argument of active versus passive to me just never was one that seemed to make sense because if I, I was going to just train an active range of motion, then technically, wouldn't I just be doing an isometric contraction, right? Like I'm most active in the two-thirds contracted position of a curl. So if I want to be the most active, why would I ever leave? Why wouldn't I just stay there? And we've already, you know, I think the, the research is pretty strong that isometrics are not the best way to grow muscle. So, you know, at, at uh, um, the, end, the end ranges of that topic, <laughs> pun intended, what is the point of that? Clearly, there's fluidity and muscular contraction and muscular movement. So why wouldn't I just own that and just keep doing that? Yeah. And, and one thing on Jimmy's topic too, you don't stop feeling the muscle when you take it into these ranges. Like when I'm doing a bicep curl, I don't stop feeling my bicep when I take it up here. Maybe I feel it a little bit less, right? But it doesn't stop working. I think that's also a good point to, to point out. Oh, and uh, so I, I see that, that if we want to just talk about active range of motion as a whole, I see it in two okay. different ways. There's there's the first way I see people talking about it, and this is what I saw for a long, long time, um, where people will say, okay, before you do anything, before you even start a first warming, warm up set, you need to test how far you can move a limb. And that's your active range of motion. And you should never leave that range of motion, no matter what, throughout your warm ups and working sets. I don't know about you guys, but. Generally, as I warm up, my range of motion improves. Absolutely. Yep. And in my experience, everybody's does. Yeah, same. So if I, if I were to start and I'm just going to do you know, a dumbbell bench press and I come back here with no weight and I say, okay, well, this is where I'm going to stop for a dumbbell bench press. You know, this is right above my chest maybe. But as I take a few warm-up sets and get warm, I can really start pulling back a bit further and letting it sink further down. Not that to mention your range of motion unloaded is not the same as a range of motion loaded. Cue yeah, the squatting with an unloaded barbell versus squatting with 60 kilos. It's different. Yeah, it's 100% different. And that is literally what the purpose of loaded stretching is. Yep. And if, if we want to talk about hypertrophy, it's fairly clear now that loaded stretching is at least beneficial yep for stretch or, under load for shizzle so it's at least beneficial if not like extremely important um right. so that one just doesn't make any sense at all um the, the the argument from what i've seen is like oh well if you can't control it actively with no weight then it's just passively push the weight is passively pushing you into it but you're not passive there. Correct. When your muscle is stretched under load, the thing is the muscle doesn't stop contracting when it is stretched under load. The muscle is actually still contracting as it's being stretched. That's what makes it a loaded stretch. I am not doing a passive stretch where I'm reaching back or whatever, you know, doing a doorway yep. stretch. This is a passive stretch. Loaded stretching. So that, in my opinion, that argument completely falls apart. The other one that uh, the active range of motion um, comes up in, and this is what I've seen more recently, is um, they use EMG studies. Yeah, this is huge, man. Brett Contreras was the first one that obviously started with that stuff, but then there's a lot of content creators that obsess over this EMG stuff. Yeah. So much so to the point that they'll bring the EMG into their video. And anybody that's listening right now, you know who I'm talking about. They'll bring the EMG into their video, show the results, or even have the EMG attached to them, and then say, look, science. 
I didn't make this up, guys. It's EMG. It's data. You know, it is what it is. The numbers don't lie. Yeah. He doesn't say these exact words, but anyone that knows who I'm talking about, you'll you'll know. So in case anyone didn't know, uh, EMG is very effective at picking up muscular contraction and a like the muscles most contracted shortest position. And as the muscle elongates and stretches, homies, homies, don't kill me. I I kind of have to roll. Um, so Trevor, if you can finish up your point with, without me, um, yeah. all love. But I, I got a jet, fellas. I'm sorry. Yeah, Corey, we appreciate you being on, man. Yeah, no, no, no. Of course, everybody love you, Trevor. Keep going, please. Don't stop. Um, but I got a roll, geez. No yeah. worries, man. Have a good we'll night. Talk in a bit. Sounds good. Uh, but so with EMG, when when you stretch a muscle with an EMG, one that electrode is stuck in the same place. And those muscle fibers will move and stretch around it. So the EMG actually falls off. The, the, it doesn't detect that anymore because the muscle is not shortening and contracting on itself. So the EMG is not super useful when we are discussing how a muscle is at lengthening. And again, it goes back to if clearly we can say at this point that a muscle being stretched is important. If, if nothing else, it's at least beneficial and it's causing an effect. You cannot then take an EMG study to say this exercise is useless for XYZ muscle. Right. Because the EMG data will not show you that. Yes. Especially when the measurement tool is biased towards the shortened position. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, it's like, a spider curl would probably have a massive EMG rating right. and it probably much less than like an incline curl or a behind the body cable curl. When you're way back here, you know, this first little bit, it's probably going to pick up very little EMG activity. Whereas a spider curl where you're up here really squeezing hard, it's probably going to be spiking like crazy. Yeah. It's the same reason like hip thrusts were, touted as the best glute exercise for a long, long time because they had the highest EMG reading. The hip thrust is maximally shortening the glute at hip extension. And it'll show a, a, a lunge is much less. You know, a deficit reverse, the front foot elevated lunge is much less EMG reading, but it's stretching the glutes a shit ton. Right. And we have a lot of data now with other measurement tools that is showing yeah. that that stretch is probably going to be contributing to muscle growth to some degree. So that's like not to say EMG is useless. Right. But you cannot use EMG to base exercise selection or recommendations on how an exercise should or shouldn't be done necessarily. Right. You can use it as a guidance, guidance tool to put you on a certain direction. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we could go into a whole exercise selection. We should probably do that in another podcast of um, exercise selection. I think we have talked about that before too. But briefly, if you could just like, what are the things that we are looking for generally, right? Generally, you can, um, an exercise that provides stimulus proxies, so pump, disruption, soreness, allows you to safely take a muscle through a large range of motion, and produce force. Right. So if you're doing an exercise and you've seen XY influencer saying that maybe it's not great for, for muscle growth, for hypertrophy, yet it gives you all of those things reliably, then it may be good. It's a stretch to, to say it's not good for hypertrophy at that point. For right, you 100%. at least. Right. And it would be silly to maybe not include that in your program based on what somebody said, if you're having yeah. a great experience with that exercise. Yeah. No, it's all great. You know, yeah. and so just this, this whole topic, the, the whole thing with like experts that clearly are just regurgitating things other people have said and or taking them out of context is something that like really, really gets to me right or or cherry picking research i see a lot too yeah 
well, and that, EMG study. Uh, Dylan and I kind of talked about this a little bit before the podcast started. Um, that's literally so you'll get somebody that they'll they will use EMG data to say, "Oh, this exercise is bad for this muscle," but then they will use the ham. So lats and hamstrings are the easiest one to do. Because they will use EMG data to say a, a lat pullover or a lat prayer is not good for lats because it does not show high EMG data. But then they will say a seated hamstring curl is by far the best hamstring exercise because it has it, it trains the hamstrings at a longer muscle length, despite the fact that it actually doesn't have as good an EMG uh, activity. And so they're literally just cherry picking the study that fits what they want to say to you. Rather than looking at the, the research pool as a whole and coming up with ideas and principles based on that, they're cherry picking for each individual scenario that they want. And, um, that being said, uh, when they say like X exercise is better or you should only do X exercise, um, I, I don't know if you just mentioned this, but the certain muscle fibers, certain muscles don't get hit in every variation of every exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So it, it's probably not a good idea to base all of your training off of one exercise because X research says it's better. Literally seen, uh, I've seen these accounts say that you should only do seated leg curls and that you should never bother with lying leg curls. And I've seen them say shit. Like if your gym only has a lying leg curl, you should get a new gym <laughs> because it's not as good for muscle growth. I love seated leg curls. Don't get me wrong. Seated leg curls don't train the sartorius through the length and range. Right. So if you want to train just like sartorius through length and range, it actually gets trained in the lying leg curl. So to say the lying leg curl is useless is just a false statement. Right. You know, uh, so again, it's just one of those things that they, they're just, they cherry pick things and they give these absolutist statements. You know, the, the lying leg curl can be a great option. Yes, it's not going to lengthen the hamstrings as much. You know, if you want to train your hamstrings in the fully lengthened position, do a step like a deadlift. And then what happens? You're still going to train your hamstrings in a slightly different way. You're going to activate different motor units when you train in a fully shortened position. Right. And what the heck happens when you're doing a seated leg curl? And that's the only variation you can do for a knee flexion. And it starts either injuring your hamstring or you're doing (laughs) 10 sets to get the same amount of stimulus to, to do it. But you're like, I can't do lying hamstring curl because the EMG study said that it doesn't um, or X study says it doesn't, you know, lengthen my hamstring as much. Yeah. Right. What are you gonna do? Just never do lying leg hamstring curl? Like, or, or even just, you, you just want to try these sets and you're like, well, I can't walk for a week, but it sucks for hypertrophy. Right. And or yes, gonna... there's okay, the whole soreness doesn't equate exactly to hypertrophy, but it's still a good metric that you had an effective stimulus. Right. 100%. I mean, if you train your hamstrings and your hamstrings are sore, then it's a good idea. It's it's probably you stimulated hamstrings. If you train your hamstrings yeah, to your exactly. sore, then something went wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> um, hey, Trevor, I know we've been on for a minute. How much more time do you got? Oh, I probably got 10, 15 more minutes. We can okay. cover a couple. Okay. Um, last, last claim I want to address, and then just a few questions. More stability on an exercise is better for muscle growth. So okay, more stable... This is actually something that is somewhat true. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's not to say that. So the 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 claim is generally um, the less uh, internal stability you need, the more external stability you have, the more you can uh, output with a muscle. Okay. This is maybe pushing it a little bit. And this, I think, comes down to the whole hyper-isolation of every muscle group at all times. So 
in general, we all know that a BOSU ball squat's not going to be awesome for hypertrophy because the stability reduces your force output. The lack of stability, sorry. Right, right. But a hack squat isn't necessarily better for quads than a high bar squat because of stability issues. Unless your core is giving out and then it's not necessarily stability issues. It's just a weak leak in the chain. Your core is not strong enough. Maybe you're, you know, your, uh, shit, uh, skeletal structure. It's not the word I was looking for, but isn't fit for a high bar squat. And you, so you can't train your quad super effectively the way you're built. You just have a very hard time not relying on, uh, glutes and, uh, low back. So that's why a hack squat might be better for you, but it's not because the hack squat is more stable than a high bar squat. There's a certain level of stability that is better. Yes. But it's not, it's, it's not that like black and white where like you have to be as stable as possible or it's not useful. Because if I was taking this to an extreme, I would be like, okay, I'm only doing machine-based work. I'm never doing a free bar barbell movement ever again because stability. Yes, exactly. That that that's the extreme. Right. And when you when you put it out as an absolutist statement, you have to take it to an extreme. Right. Because if it's an absolute statement, it has to be absolute at every level. So there's a balance, you know? Right. Um, it, it, and it's like dumb. What's really funny is they'll say that and then they'll use dumbbells. That's exactly what I was thinking of while you said that. I'm like, wait, dumbbell dumbbells. pressing is less stable than a barbell. Yeah. And they'll, they'll, the same person, the same people that say more stability is always better, then we'll never press with a barbell because barbell pressing is bad. Because it doesn't align right, so they're going to do dumbbell pressing instead. Well, shoot! In that in that instance, a machine press is probably the best because cables are not stable either. Right. I don't know if you've ever done a cable press, but the cable is really over or under, and you're doing this the whole time. Yeah. Freaking awkward as hell. Right. And even dumbbells, dumbbells are not as stable as a bar, where you can really wrench against that bar to keep you stable. It's yeah. why the, the you know I I always said the camber bar is like a dumbbell and a barbell had a baby because <laughs> you get the range of motion of dumbbells but the stability, the stability of the for barbell yeah so it, it, it well yes stability does matter there is a a spectrum in which it matters right and you know you you probably don't want to build a whole program with one or the other. You want a variation yeah. of stable exercises and less stable exercises. Yeah. Because sometimes those those uh, less stable exercises are just, they just impose a higher um, RSM, higher raw stimulus magnitude on the target muscle. They, they just hit your target muscle unlike any machine can. Cue our last podcast. You can go back and watch. Yeah. Right? 100%. You know, um, and, and there's definitely certain instances where it will be better. You know, if I want to uh, train my tri, like I can train my triceps super effectively with a uh, inclined dumbbell press. And part of that is due to the, the lack of stability and being on a certain path because I can kind of change how I press. Right. So that one's kind of a, a that that that's a statement that's not entirely incorrect, but again, it comes back to the the people are saying this with an absolutism of anything that's not stable, a, a, a high bar squat, a bent over row, a whatever isn't as good. And the same thing is like okay, you're so stability more stability is always better. Why are you doing a barbell stiff like a deadlift or a barbell RDL instead of using that machine right there? The machine is more stable. Exactly. Yeah. You, 
if you have if you make an absolute statement you must take that statement to the extremes if yeah. you if you can't take it to the extremes it's not an absolute statement and i think you hit the nail yes. on the head you and and on top of that those people will also do single leg exercises too which is a whole other thing <laughs> right sorry no no 100%. i can get worked up in this podcast i'm trying to keep calm but no no it, it's really really good i think you 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 definitely hit the nail on the head there because you will see a lot of these people still using dumbbells still doing barbell deadlifts it's specific exercises that they're like this one you can't do and you can't do this one but these yeah. ones you can do but then their argument kind of falls apart because no, yeah then they don't give you a reason why that a less stable exercise is fine here but not here right right just makes for good content, I guess. You know, there's time and a place. Maybe you've done, you know, if you do stiff-legged deadlifts or de deficit deadlifts or something like that, and then you're supposed to do a barbell row, yeah, that might not be a good idea. Maybe a more stable exercise, like a machine chest-supported row, is your better option there. If you want to train your upper back and or lats. Because... The stability, you, you've used the stability you have. And you would have to use such a light load at that point to maintain back rigidity because your back's already fried that you can't effectively train your upper back. That's a statement where you can say, yes, the, the chest-supported row, the stable variant is definitely better in this case. Or maybe isolating certain muscle groups. Yeah, but it's you know that can go into the whole thing of like not every muscle group needs to be hyper isolated at all times. Compound exercises are compound for a reason. Right. You know, you don't need to with rows this is a good example. I don't think that you should try to hyper fixate on rowing for the lats. Or really rowing for your upper back, for that matter. I think you should just row. Right. And kind of let all of it happen. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 100%. I think that can go into the over-isolation of muscles argument and trying to make make every exercise an isolation movement. Yeah. When you can have great variations that hit all of the muscles and you can achieve stimulus of your whole entire back in one exercise, instead of doing five different exercises from five different angles. Yeah. Yeah. And for twice sure. Twice the amount of sets. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, maybe, maybe not the greatest training efficiency there. 100%. I have um, one, yeah. one topic Please. I do want to go into if you don't have anything else. No, you're good. Uh, one I wanted to bring up, I don't know how much you have seen this, is that um, five to eight reps is the most effective and anything outside of that is wasteful. Have seen you seen a whole lot. Okay, I've I, seen this. I don't think so. Maybe once we start talking about it, I will. Okay, I've seen know. this. So the, the idea is um, because the last five reps of a set are the most effective mm -hmm. that five to eight rep sets are the most effective thing you can do for hypertrophy and that anything else is simply wasted energy because you are you are getting the same amount of effective reps but have to do all this other work to get there right so that's the game i've seen um one the effective reps model is not it's not solidified as being exactly what causes hypertrophy. By no means is the data 100% clear that the effective reps model is dead on 100%. It's a pretty good rough estimate that especially for more advanced trainers, you don't want to be you don't want to at least all the time commonly be training further than 5 reps from failure. If you're a beginner, you certainly can, though. Right. A beginner can train 10 reps from failure and get great results. But if the effective reps are the only thing that counts, how does that work? Because there's clearly other things going on. 
And we may not know all of those things, but there's clearly other things going on before you get to those last few reps. Now, the effective reps are what is likely the case is the effective reps maybe have more propor proportional stimulus per rep right. than the others do. But it's not to say they don't have any stimulus at all. Uh, and then the other thing I hate about that argument is, have you ever tried to do a set of five lateral raises? And by shoulders. Yeah, your shoulders are going to rip out of the sock. <laughs> or a set of five incline curls or dumbbell flies. Yeah. Or even a set of eight. It's not conducive to certain movements. It, it doesn't work. Or a set of... Okay, and I have seen people do this. But a set of eight leg extensions. My knees hurt to think about that. I would, I would literally, my knee is, uh, I, I dislocated it previously. My knee would, would re-dislocate if I did that. Like, no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Just like literally, I basically only do leg extensions above 15 reps because below that starts to hurt my knee. Yeah. Um, my shoulders are wrecked. I don't do any shoulder training under 12 reps because my, it just hurts. And even sometimes there, there are sometimes my shoulders just get, really beat up jujitsu lifting whatever and i just start doing everything 15 plus reps yeah mostly 20 i still get a great stimulus i still get great pumps i even still get some soreness in my delts and again you know these same same people will say oh well sensation doesn't matter yes i'm glad you pumps don't matter soreness doesn't matter well what matters if, if the feeling of tension in your muscle doesn't matter, if the burn in the target muscle doesn't matter, if the fatigue feeling in the target muscle doesn't matter, if the soreness you get in the target muscle doesn't matter, what matters then? Right. Effective reps. Effective reps, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's one I've seen a lot, and it just really bothers me because um, then people really start to take it hard. We're like, oh, well. Maybe I should only do five to eight reps per set, and that's all I should ever do. You know, uh, the the research is unequivocally clear at this point. Yes, that the hypertrophy is equal between five and thirty reps as long as you take them close to failure. Right. So to say you should only do five to eight reps and anything else is a waste. Oh, that's a very, very, very big stretch. Right. You'd be discounting a lot of research. Because I've seen, even in recent years, a lot of those studies coming across my page. Like, they've been doing more and more of them yeah. on the effective range for hypertrophy, rep range. Yeah. And loading range. Yeah, I've actually seen some where it actually might even be above 30 reps. Wow. It's less clear. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I've I seen see. some further away from failure as well. Yeah, like and five. I've seen further away from failure as well. Um, I know, I think it's the data-driven strength guys. Mm -hmm. They will train like six RIR. That's crazy. Back. Yeah. Um, and um, I think it's Brian, no, Mike Zordos. Um, he'll even train further away from failure too. He'll have his athletes train further away from failure. Wow. Um, even, and, and you know, these are mostly high, uh, uh, power lifters, but even in hypertrophy blocks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard that with velocity um, training, yeah. like training with a certain velocity, but further away from failure. For yeah. Strength. And so, and, well, and these are in hypertrophy blocks, not just yeah. strength blocks. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, man, clearly the effective reps model is a decent model, but you can't say it's the end all be all for hypertrophy. I can't, I can't imagine that he would continue on if his athletes weren't getting results with that either. Exactly. Especially yeah. someone who's very data driven. I, I can't imagine that it's not working. Yeah. So, yeah, no. And, and I think uh, a couple of things I want to mention there is, is uh, one is the lead in reps. So it's like, like you mentioned, the, it's those reps are the effective reps, the five to zero RIR are, are likely more hypertrophic, but that's not to say that the lead in reps to get to the five to zero RER or not. And that is also validated by research where we train in higher rep ranges and um, get equivalent hypertrophy. Yeah. And also 
um, a lot of the research shows that um, in lower rep sets, maybe you get more muscle fiber um, activation, more fast switch uh, muscle fiber activation, uh, which even makes an argument for training further from failure. Mm -hmm. But that just means that in higher repetition ranges that you um, may need to train closer to failure. Again, cue our last uh, podcast. And yeah, I I would be 100% ready to admit that, that if you, in fact, I think as a general rule of thumb, if you are training in higher rep ranges, you should almost bias yourself to push closer to failure just to make sure you're actually pushing hard enough because that shit hurts. What was that uh, first part? I I might cut out for a second. I kind of have an idea what you said, but. I was saying that I think if you're training to in higher up ranges, like especially like over 15, and like especially getting push 20, a little, you should harder. It's probably not a bad idea to actually push a little harder just to make sure you're pushing hard enough because that really hurts. And you, you almost want to make sure you're pushing hard enough that you're not stopping early because of how much it hurts. Like I did leg extensions on Tuesday and I think I did 23 reps my first set. And I, t- after I finished that set, I told my training partner, I wanted to quit at 10. Yeah. Because it hurt. I had an exercise like that. My last mesocycle. What is it? Man, I just remember it being so brutal. And I was like, I just remember thinking to myself like, Oh, it was, um, it was barbell skull crushers of all things. I was, I was, uh, I was doing higher rep ranges. So it was the second time I did it in the week. And, uh, man, I was at, remember, I was remember it being at a rep eight and it was like week three or four. So I had, I had been progressing via reps. So I had gotten up to like 17. I remember being at like at rep eight or nine. And I was like, this is going to take a lot. This already burns. This already takes a lot of effort to execute. And yeah, I am at that, that same thing, but I have luckily, cause we track, we know how many we did the previous week, right? We know what we're supposed to do. Yeah. That's, that's why I did 23 reps is because I knew I had 100%. to do 22 right, or right. more. I mean, if I, if I hadn't been tracking, I probably would have stopped at that eight. Cause I was like, this yeah. is, this is a lot. This is painful. This shit hurts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that can also be, and I, and I imagine I've had a similar thought process in the past. I imagine that could be a reason why people avoid higher rep ranges sometimes too, just due to the pain. It's very much to pain. I mean, leg presses. Look at that. Like oh, a twenty rep set of leg press. It's awful. It's soul destroying. Yeah, I had a guy jump in my workout um, a couple weeks ago, and I was on like my last week of giant sets on the leg press. He wasn't ready for that. <laughs> not prepared. Yeah, uh, I don't think he knew what he was signed up for when you're we doing giant sets on the leg press. He was literally like crawling out of the leg press after each set. It was hilarious. I remember one time in the gym, I ended up with a whole crowd around me because I was doing uh, giant sets on the leg press with timed rests. Yeah, that's what I was doing. And I, I think it was like 50 reps with one minute rests between sets. Mm-hmm. And I finished and like I was it was one of those I was screaming to finish the reps at the end. And I like people started crowding around me because I just like wasn't even locking my or like wasn't even re-racking in the last oh, like God. because it hurt more to unrack it again. Unrack, yeah, yeah. That pain kind of sets in when you've been resting. Yeah. And so it's like I think I got, you know, whatever, 18, and then I got to 30, and then it was like eight reps, and I just left it and you know, six reps and left it and just cranked it till I was done. Yeah. And I mean I get out and I literally rack it and I just kind of roll out. I just lay there for like 10 minutes. Yeah. If a couple I, of my I, friends that came up and took pictures of me because of, <laughs> you know, funny shit. I'll, I'll make the mistake of getting up after that. And I almost pass out every time because I'll, I'll, you know, you go with all this le- blood in your legs, you're sitting down and I'll stand up like to get water or something. And I'm like, well, I am this close to passing out right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was funny. Very... No, good. Training uh, with Mike and Izzy last year. Oh, yeah. On the the leg press, my the last set. Uh, I mean, you and you in the video, you'll hear me say it that I was going to do twenty reps, and Mike was like, "How many are you at?" And I was like, nine. And he was like, "Okay." 
<laughs> I, I I literally failed and got pinned at 14 reps. And Izzy <laughs> so and Mike so came over and pulled the sled off me. And Mike was like, you want to take weight off and do 10 more? And so I did. And afterwards, I literally couldn't stand up out of the machine. I had to crawl over to the wall. And I just like sat at the wall. And you, know, Scott got it in the video. I was just like staring off into space. Because I was like this close to passing out. Dude. I want to do like a week of training with you sometime. Ah, oh, yes. It would be so much fun. Yes, I we need to train legs when I'm not being stupid and training legs twice, two days in a row. <laughs> oh, I mean, you were intense just doing that. So, shit, I can't imagine when you're like ready to go, ready to go. Uh, uh, do you have any other topics on this uh, whole biomechanics and just general fitness influencer topic? Um, you know, I have I have a few, uh, but I think we'll save them for the next podcast. One is just like intensity techniques. Um, and it's actually uh, something that they might get correct somewhat is just that um, intensity techniques are potentially less hypertrophic. Um, but I think we can talk a little bit about that on the next. Yeah, episode. I, I have some things to say about that. So we'll and shimmy will too. So, okay, cool, man. Well, I'll let you get out of here. All right. I hope you guys found this topic helpful. As it's something I see a lot. And uh, as always, like, comment, subscribe, leave a consider leaving a review on your listening platform of choice as well. And then all of our links are down below if you're interested in coaching. Thanks for listening. Hey, thank you all for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe to the channel. And if you're interested in coaching, please feel free to click the consultation link down below. Thanks again.